think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 54 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 55th episode. I'm Laurent Carbonell. I'm Aitzen Rainville. And uh, you are leaving tomorrow, very early. I am. To go to the conservative convention in Halifax. So by the time people listen to this, probably, uh, you will be Halifax bound. I will be not waking up, but I will be enjoying lunch in Halifax. Indeed. Well, yeah. unless you post it tonight, then I'll be I'll be on the plane, mostly. Yeah. You'll be on your way. If people are listening to this on their morning commute. I suppose it depends on whether I get it produced tonight. Do I probably will. I probably will. You probably will. You're, probably a, you're will. a hardworking boy. <laughs> you're you're going to push through and do your 10 minutes of producing that it takes you to put this thing together. Yeah, it's not exactly uh, a ton of work. Um, so, you were going to the third convention. Uh, what is, like, on the docket there? Because I, I took a quick look at some of the resolutions, and, like, I think a good third of them were basically just saying, like, we should install Jordan Peterson as the new uh, mullah, basically. Yes. The, the, the uh, Canadian Ayatollah to supervise free speech and theology issues. Yes, the Jordan Peterson mullah resolutions. I, I see they've been prioritized highly. Yes. No, I think... Uh, so, first of all, let's start out by briefly touching on what is not happening at this convention. Um, because I think between the NDP, the Liberal and the Conservative Conventions, people seem to get them confused as to, you know, what happens at which one. Um, so first and foremost, unlike the Liberal Convention earlier this year, also in Halifax, um, the Conservatives will not be electing a party president. The Conservative Party doesn't have a party president. Oh, I didn't actually didn't know that. It's led by the executive director. Okay. And the party leader. Um, so the executive director, who's Dustin Van Voot, um, is, has been in the role since 2014. He was appointed by Stephen Harper and has been a, a great fit for so the they're, role. So they're appointed? They are. Okay. He is appointed and serves at the pleasure of the leader. So for the NDP, like, we do have a similar role. It's called the national director. Uh, and we also have a party president, so... Like, do you guys have, like... I'm, I think there is a board, right? Like, So there is the board. It's called the National Council. I think there's 20, I might be off by one or two, uh, 20 national councillors from across Canada uh, in the Constitution. There's you know a schedule that allocates them based on the number of seats um, each province and territory has in the sure. Commons. Um, so there's about 20 and they're elected every two years. Um, so those are positions you have to fight for. Although in all the provinces except for Quebec and Ontario, they're being acclaimed. In Ontario, there's about twice as many candidates running. In Quebec, it's a little less than twice. And I think in Ontario, it's um, eight people running for four seats. And in Quebec, I think it's five running for three. Okay. So some, some notional elections going on there, but a lot, of, a lot of the positions will be acclaimed. And the National Council is sort of the governing council of the Conservative Party, alongside the party leader, the executive director, um, and the Conservative Fund director i can't remember how that how that position is titled um that was was irving gerstein famously in the last government who got sort of dragged in peripherally into the duffy affair still is still is irving Irving, if i'm not mistaken um but i if i'm not mistaken the uh executive director and the fund chair i I think it is i can't remember how that position's styled um play non-voting rules okay um so as, as you would expect from appointed position sure um so yeah that is the election that's going to occur and then alongside the election though i suppose our senators would be somewhat confused by that concept 
<laughs> Alongside the election of national councillors, there will be the constitution. Uh, yeah, that's the whole like. There's a panel, and then the work or is a workshop. I think is what they're calling it. Yeah, then, uh... it, I mean. It's a very similar process, so both the policy and the constitutional amendment uh, process are prescribed in the conservative constitution, um, and amending them, essentially it operates in a very similar way. There are sort of resolutions brought forward, they're workshop, they're voted on, and they eventually move forward for a more serious vote. Mm-hmm. Um This year, there's, you know, a, there's, I think, 72 or 76, somewhere in that range, um, policy is to be discussed, um, and I can't remember the number of constitutional um, amendments, but there's you know a reasonable number as there always is. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would note that is not happening is a leadership review, right. unlike happened at the NDP. Right. So uh, the NDP convention. convention, it's literally every NDP convention. There's a vote on whether or not to have a leadership review. Oh, is uh, that how it works? That is technically how it is. Yes. Uh, at, so the, at the convention, at they the convention. vote, and is the threshold 50%? The threshold, I mean, it is 50% formally, though obviously, like, in Tom Mulcair's case, I think he said he wanted to hit 70. No, but, but I mean, initially, for the vote to make the review happen. No, yeah, that is over 50%. Uh, okay. But I think a leader, seeing that he doesn't have the confidence of the, the actual membership, well, will... Joe Clark famously set the bar here. Yes, with, like two uh, turns, right? Yeah. yeah. So... So, yeah, I mean, that would formally trigger a leadership contest. Uh, but, yeah, I think, and then you, you'd have the option to run again, as others have. Uh, Greg Selinger did, all for all the good it did him. Um, but there you go. Okay, so in the Conservative Constitution, a leadership uh, review vote is only triggered following a federal election in which the leader Does did not, not form, form government. government. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not increased the majority of seats. Um, it was, you know, successful in becoming prime minister. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. Sure. Yeah, it makes more sense than to do it every single time thing the NDP has, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the process. Um, the, I mean, the Caddy O'Malley has a good piece um, where she delves into what is being discussed. She's the only journalist that I've seen so far that covered um, the constitutional proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, and her piece is interesting and insightful and worth reading on iPolitics. Um, and then there's been a number of pieces on the policies being discussed, um, varying degrees of quality. Um, you know, a lot of policy at this point, it comes from EDAs all over Canada. Sure. Um, some of them are wacky. Some of them aren't. Some are very serious. Um, there's certainly a whittling down process from the 72 plus. Yeah. Um, to the ones that are eventually voted on on the main floor and then the ones that are ultimately passed. Sure. So a lot of people like to hold up the wacky ones and say, look at you. The reality is, you know, there has been some notional voting already, but it hasn't been hard, too, too hard for mm-hmm. wacky policies to get this Yeah, far. well, there are, there are a lot of, like, enforce the free speech uh, things and, like, contain, yeah, they're all, like... As Jordan Peterson tells us, uh, we must defend free speech, and it's like, okay. I'm, I'm uh, not, there are a lot of those. I'm not sure Jordan Peterson has mentioned any of them. They are. I mean, he literally is. is like, he I've really? seen a lot of them. Oh. Yeah, I, I read all the free speech ones because I thought it'd be funny, and yes, a lot of them do actually mention Jordan Peterson by now. I will have to do a control yes. fine for Jordan Peterson. I thought, I thought you were being sarcastic. No, I was being completely serious, yeah. Um, so that's the process as much as I think we're going to cover it. Let's talk briefly about sort of how the conservatives are sitting going into convention. 
Um, so notably, uh, a convention is happening in Halifax, and it's being hosted by Peter McKay. Um, the reason it's happening in Halifax is obvious. The Conservatives in the last election um, lost all their seats. Liberals swept the Atlantic provinces. Um, so the Conservatives have a lot of ground to make up and nothing to lose. Right. And the Liberals are in the opposite position. They yeah. have literally everything to lose. Well, yeah. Uh, in terms of yeah. seats in the province. Sure. I mean, they They're... have something to lose. Well, yeah. Sure. <laughs> They, yes. Yeah. They have... I, I think it's almost, like, inevitable that they will lose a couple. I mean, like, Fundy Royal, I think, has been held by, confe- like, the Conservatives since Confederation, more or less. Like, with, I think, one exception. Like, it, it a lot of them are just, like, they're not going to stay liberal. Yeah, so the, the Conservatives can certainly make inroads, as can the NDP. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, we will. We will. <laughs> um, so Liberals were obviously trying to reinforce their sort of stronghold in the Atlantic provinces while the Conservatives are trying to make inroads. Um, the convention comes at sort of an interesting time for the Conservative Party. Um, we're about one year out from um, the next election, give or take. Um, a lot of the time at convention is spent on training and prep. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, you know, a, a, a little, a little better. commas for seven hours. Yeah, a little yeah. better timing that you can get all the candidates in the room. You can get so many people from EDAs and you can train them up. Yeah, well, there has been a lot of nominations going on, too. I mean, yeah. the, the conservatives are, like, getting ready to go. The, the schedule includes media training and training with the apps that are used and all, all sorts of things. Um, but obviously, the elephant in the room is Bernier's week and a half of uh, <laughs> tweets. <laughs> I'm not sure if that'll be audio on the um, audible on the recording, but Laurent is humming the Maxime Bernier jingle. Um, so, I think what's easy to do going into convention here is to overstate the significance of Maxime Bernier's, you know, tweets over the past week and a half, and to think of it as sort of an existential crisis for the party. I've certainly, you know, struggled with that framing myself. Um, But I really think that beyond that, that's really a short-term issue, where the long-term issue with the party is uh, the strength of the NDP, I think, is going to be their biggest electoral challenge. I think Scheer will be able to weather um, Maxime Bernier's sort of outbursts here. Um, and I think that the party broadly is in a very good standing going to the next election. Their polling is at roughly the highest point it's been since the 2015 election. Um, they're making ground. The liberals are falling apart in various policy areas uh, from immigration to environment, energy. Um, I think they are really at a low point. And uh, fundraising is, of course, the last one. Uh, the Conservatives, I think, raised $6 million in the last quarter. Um, Liberals got half that with three. And I believe the NDP got $850,000. could not tell you, to be honest. Um, something along those lines. So, well, every, well, Maxine Bernier's tweets are certainly the issue of the day. I don't think they're an existential issue. I don't think they're necessarily a long-term issue so, for the party. So, I... Kind of disagree with you on that. Um, I think please do. I think a couple of years ago, people were pointing to the Conservative Party of Canada as an outlier in kind of the Western developed world, democratic developed 
etc. Weird countries, uh, as they're called, Western, uh, whatever. I forget the acronym. Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> good try. Though. Point being uh, that people were looking at that party as an anomaly in that it was a right of center party that had not taken strong anti-immigration positions uh, compared to like U.S. Republicans, compared to conservatives in the U.K., compared to conservatives in France, Italy, etc. Like just all over basically the entire world. Uh, well, the weird world. Um, so that if people were saying like that is a real anomaly and it speaks to Canada's you know cohesion and all this stuff and like you know, they're more concerned with like the economic stuff and this was sort of the the pattern of Harper government. He really kept. I think any sort of like very immigration skeptic or phobic elements of the party very, very firmly like under his grip. Uh, that obviously is not the case anymore. I think uh, we've seen like not only Bernier now, I think this is the most recent thing, but like, you know, it's barely a year and a half ago we had Kelly Leach running a, a overtly xenophobic campaign. Um, like, this is not like out of nowhere. Uh, and like the stridency of the rhetoric especially online in terms of like the ontario proud etc pages the rebel obviously uh like this stuff isn't going away it's getting more pronounced like i don't think the trend is ebbing it's complete it's coming in like i think bernier is not the end of it i think he's like this is the first third of of a cycle um so i i'd be i'm very skeptical about the idea that like this is all going to get sort of like put away nicely and neatly before, like, you know, the conservatives get back into government, which they will eventually do. So, yes and no. I, I think what's heartening to see is that um, there has been a significant amount of caucus back backlash against um, Bernier's comments. And I, I think the forefront of that has really been Michelle Rempel. Yeah. If you caught her press conference today. Of whom we are often critical, it must be said. Um, she, I mean, so, some of, so in the coverage that came out of that press conference, I think, um, I think some of the coverage focused on the wrong things. Um, but I think watching the entire press conference, I was very heartened to see her position um, in many areas of this discussion. Um, and her, her point was essentially like, uh, in regards to Maxine Bernier, she said, listen, I'm the immigration shadow minister. He's never come to talk to me about immigration. He's never expressed any of these concerns to me. I can't tell you why he's doing this. That's not the stance of our party. That's not where we're at. Sure. Um, said, I am interested in having a conversation about policy. Yes. Um, about transparency and immigration numbers and levels and things along these lines, which I think are all very legitimate questions to have. And this is sort of the conversation that got triggered by Justin Trudeau's yeah. uh, heckler incident. Um, in terms of, you know, the broader trend line, I think, so you can certainly look at um, third parties, be it Ontario Proud or the Rebel and others, and see um, the rise of that sort of sentiment there. But I think as long as sort of the walls of the party are kept fairly rigid, which Michelle Rempel, I think, exemplified today, that the party is still in good standing. Okay, so this is the same Michelle Rempel who... Uh at a emergency meeting of the, the sort of immigration committee a couple weeks ago, 
basically badgered all the witnesses uh, into sort of like saying like, you know, is there a crisis? Like, is there a crisis? And then like would not let them answer. And then who, when CP asked news experts, uh, news experts, experts about immigration, like, hey, is this a crisis? This is what the conservatives have been saying over and over and over again for the last six months. They all said no. And then she said that CP was being unfair by fact-checking her claims, or at least by running her claims by experts. I think fact-checking is probably a strong word here. And, and like, she would, like, I think that she's not innocent here. Like, I think she, the party has been, like, heightening the temperature on this rhetoric themselves and they're not blameless as to like what their kind of like peripheral or loose cannon members do like i i think there's been a clear signal from the party that this is an okay turf to to start jousting on and they're gonna do it like they're not like they've been doing this right it's just they've been doing it in the sort of like and it's the same thing in the states right like trump didn't come out of nowhere with this like mexicans are rapists thing it was that like you'd had a generation of right-wing politics that like while you had people at the top speaking in very measured tones and saying, well, you know, it's about, like, all these things. And then really, like, running, like, when the cameras weren't on or, like, you know, when it actually came down to policy on, like, very, very, very different things than what they were saying, like, in very adult tones to very serious reporters in public. I think it's just, like, I think you're falling for the face here a little bit. Like, and I get it, right? Like, Etienne, like, I, I know you. I know, you, like, you do not agree with that direction that the party is, like, perhaps treading in. And I think you, you want to see that that's not happening. But, like, <laughs> I think it is happening. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you gave me a lot to respond to there. I did, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, and it's really where to pick up. Um, leaving aside um, uh, Michelle Rempel's interaction with CP and the, the baloney meter fiasco, yes. I, I do think a lot of that was a little. I think fact checking in general is kind of like a thing that's probably past its prime at this point, in, in the way that it's often done, and it needs a new format. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it's called the baloney meter, yeah, or the Pinocchios in the Washington, all Post, of those it's offend all, it's me. It's all kind of bullshit. Yes, yeah, they all offend me to begin with. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are problems with objectivity in some of these fact-checking things. Sure. Fact, like that, that's what. Well, and Rempel's especially like point yeah, and especially was. with this, like it's not a fact whether or not it's a crisis or not because the, there's not like a, a thing where you can look at. Yes, this is a crisis now. It has passed six point three. On yeah, the, yeah, it's, it's, on on the crisis. But at the Richter. same time, right? Like they've been terming it a crisis, and then you ask people who are experts in immigration and in sort of refugee policy and asylum policy, like, is this a crisis? And they say, you know, based on sort of like what we've seen in the past and in other places, no, we don't feel that this is a crisis. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm derailing this, but carry on. No, but I don't okay. think it's fact check. Let's yeah. let's wade into that a little bit though. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just a little bit. Just a little bit, because I think so. Obviously, the discussion of a crisis is you know highly subjective. Yeah. Um, but I think when you go to the experts, when you go to academics, yeah. Um, who, well, not not to belittle or be anti-intellectuals, but you have academics who study these issues from afar. Um, when they're looking and defining crisis, I think there's the tendency to you know compare with global refugee crisis, this is global uh, comparable situation. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at Canada next to Turkey. Sure. Next to any of these countries that have, you know, just massive, massive refugee well, like, flows. Yeah, I think 
Turkey is something like many millions. Yes. Yeah. So I think, and be like, oh, well, you know, Turkey as a developing country with this GDP yeah. has managed to, for better or for worse, um, handle, it. handle the yeah. situation. Um, and maybe there it's crisis levels, but you know, in Canada we're talking about yeah. a first, or not first world, but a developed, I'll, I'll use that language, yeah. a developed uh, you know, G7 country, and we're talking about people in the tens of uh, numbers in the tens of thousands. Yeah, I don't think many experts would be inclined to in yeah. in that context, no, in for broader sure. context. Yeah, and like one of the people they they asked was like a UN like refugee resettlement person and to, to term. Like, no, so I don't think it's a crisis. I un- I understand yeah. where that assessment comes from. Yeah, um, but I think it's very different from not only Michelle Rempel's perspective, um, but. From, you know, the perspective of MP is the perspective of mayors um, in these communities. Sure. And the perspective of often provincial politicians who are having to manage their budgets. And their budgets are being thrown out because of, you know, millions of dollars in unplanned yeah. or additional costs. Yeah. So I think our tolerance for what is a crisis is much smaller yeah. than it is in other contexts, particularly yeah. in the academic Well, context. and certainly, like, I, I don't think that the government has actually handled this all that well. Like, you do have people in hotel rooms for, like, long periods of time, and that's, like, and, you know, a bunch of other stuff where that, like, seems like the response is not very fast-moving, and, like, I get that that's a capacity issue to a large extent, but, like, you know, this is also foreseeable, and, like, you can plan for these things, and, like, you know, you, we... We saw, like, a tons of, like, people fleeing the Syrian conflict in 2014, 2015. Like, this was, like, not, I guess. And especially, like, after Trump was elected, which I think was the precipitator for a lot of people crossing the U.S. border. Sort of saying that, you know, they were claiming asylum from the U.S. And, like, uh, actually, Ripple was asked directly about this today. I uh, said, like, do you think people can legitimately claim asylum for the U.S.? And she was like, I think that's a legitimate discussion to have and all this. And, like, I think it is. <laughs> like, I think it is worth discussing. But, yeah, I think... Like, the crisis language was distinctly unhelpful, I think, in the sense that it, I don't think it really contributed to finding a solution to the problem, which I agree, like, the government's not handling this well at, like, an operational level. But anyway, I think we're, we're straying kind of far from the central <laughs> point of, like, where the party's going on this, so let's pivot back to that, I think. But uh, I, I did want to respond to several of those points. Okay. Um, well, I mean, go ahead, but just, like, well, I think we've settled this one. <laughs> Okay, wait, wait. To, okay, let's tie it back to the to the broader narrative. Sure. I think that immigration issues fundamentally, and more more so than immigration, perhaps border issues are more accurate, are incredibly instrumental to any citizen of any you know country of the world's view of their country. Um, that they have to have confidence that their government is managing. Yeah the inflow of people to their country, be it through asylum claims, legal Well, I mean, you look at, like, the Daily Mail headlines for the last 10 years, and it's, like, immigration out of control. And, like, the the whole Brexit, like, theme was take back control, right? Like, that was their what they were running on. Like, I agree with you that that is a psychologically very powerful thing. Because it goes into everything. Yeah. It it goes into where are your tax dollars going? Why can't I see a doctor? Um, my child's school is underserviced. Like literally every one of these yeah. comes back to, or comes back to in many people's minds to the question of, is it because the money that I'm paying is going somewhere else? Or yeah. is, is it because... Well, and this um, was like, I mean, this isn't just immigrants too. I mean, this was like, what, 
you know, the Reagan's welfare queens was a very similar kind of thing where like you were talking about like, are other people getting the money and like, are they getting it in a way that's unfair? Because like welfare well, queens was not just so you, much that, you, you know, oh, black people are getting the money. It's that they're cheating somehow. You don't like, even have to go to the United fraud. You don't even have to go to the United States to no, see Mike this Harris, dynamic. I, guess, yes, was the I, same thing. I wasn't even going to Mike Harris. I was going to say uh, it's largely at the heart of uh, Western alienation. And uh, uh, Alberta always picking on Quebec. Yes. For based trans- on a misunderstanding of how equalization ba- works for the most for part. But... Transfer payments and equalization, yeah. right? So it's like, kind of equalization's fault for being impossible to understand, in <laughs> fairness. But... This, this is a very common theme we're seeing. Yeah. So I, I think this just goes to the heart of the issue. One undeserving ethnic other getting stuff that you feel you, you should do. <clears throat> I mean, that's fundamentally kind of what Western alienation was about, too. So. And explaining... And, and why? I, I hope this helps illustrate and explain why issues of immigration get the label crisis. Well, and it's why people think of it quickly. as like security, like economics, immigration is all sort of like one kind of matrix in the sort of conservative way of thinking about border issues. And I get that, right? Like I understand. So let me let me do the conservative pivot here, though. And this is where Michelle Rempel went largely in the press conference, talking about what the liberal government is doing. Mm-hmm. And so we have all these issues, and I mean, conservative framing or not, maybe the conservatives are driving coverage a little bit, but um, people are coming across, and the media is reporting on them, and there's media at the border, and you know, there's quasi-tent um, infrastructure being set up by RCMP and others at the border. Like this is a public interest issue that mm-hmm. the media should be covering. Yeah. Um, so regardless of rhetoric. It is in the public interest to cover this issue, and I think it would be raising doubts in people's minds one way or another. Perhaps, you know, you can argue about uh, the question of magnitude. Well, and to point to European politics once again, it's like the reason you have like alternative sort of, I hate the word, but populist right-wing parties that sort of come to prominence in the UK and other places is because there's a perception that traditional conservative parties weren't addressing the issues specifically of immigration and others that voters wanted to see addressed in some fashion so i think it's like they're that's like they see a gap and they want to go for it or they don't and then they're replaced or sort of like have to compete on the right flank with another kind of party so i think it's like it's not unusual as a dynamic i yeah so i mean i think there's a fine line uh to be tread here um to, to sum it all up i think there's a fine line to be tread here um, I think it needs to be well thought out and tread carefully. Yeah, I, this is kind of um, part of it is like with the lessons of like the last like five, six years kind of behind us from other countries, like I think the conservatives could afford to be a lot more sensitive about like the very tricky dynamics of this issue than they've been. I think they've been a little cavalier about like, I think they've been very cavalier about how they've treated the issue, frankly, but like this is something that they're going to have to manage, right? And I think like it's something that's very very emotional like for lots of people including lots of people in their base and like it's like if they want to get through this without turning this into sort of like the like rural nightmare politics of the u.s or like even the very very contentious sort of like right-wing splits on immigration that you see in european countries like they'll have to tread very carefully i think so yeah and i think that instinct is often you know, overrode by the standard electoral politics. Yeah. Where, you know, if, if this issue were, 
you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, fish quotas or something like that. It's your favorite thing every time. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, there's too many you know, striped mussels coming across the border. I, I think in an, in another situation, you could you would see similarly inflammatory language yeah. because that is what opposition does, right? Sure, and like, and yeah, I mean... As, as an instinct, as a reactive instinct, yeah. it's to use the harshest, okay. like, this is a crisis, this is an emergency you need to address yeah, the zebra well, I mean, muscles. You, you look at, like, you know, First Nations infrastructure and, like, you know, the NDP is not shy about calling it a crisis a lot. I mean, arguably, you know, it is, but, of course, you know, who are the crisis experts but, that we can go to <laughs> yes, here? Yes, exactly. Uh, but, no, I mean, like, I get it, right? I get that it, opposition has its sort of incentives. And, like, frankly, as opposition, you need to be loud because media doesn't really listen otherwise. Like, you don't have the kind of, like, people hanging on your every word that you do when you're in government. So, like, I, I get that, right? But I'm just saying, like, the conservatives have their sort of coalition. I think they have the experience of other countries to draw on in terms of, like, what not to do. And I think, like, they're falling into familiar traps and going down familiar avenues that I think, with the hindsight they have access to, could be avoiding if they wanted to. Hindsight's very difficult. and uh, <laughs> You know yeah. what they say, hindsight is not 2020. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> So let's let's leave that issue there. Sure. I, I feel like wow, we're already yeah, we did a lot of time. We're already that. at thirty minutes. Yeah. Um, what's what's the next issue we have on we our? We want to uh, talk a little bit about. Is there anything else from a convention that you're otherwise excited about or like looking forward to? Not looking forward to. I I will have to confess, this is my uh, my first policy convention. Yeah. I've never the big the big glazed boy is I've, going. I've never. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I've never, himself. yeah, he's one of the speakers. No, I've just never uh, traveled for a convention before, um, so this, this is a first for me. So I, I'm interested in sitting in on. I'm going as an observer. Uh, I'm interested to sit in on the sort of just the policy process and get a sense of how exactly it works. Well, you're going to be the most well-educated person about semicolons, like <laughs> in town, by the time you get back. If they're anything like NDP conventions, which I don't know, they might not be. Um, so we are now a month away or out from last month's cabinet shuffle, approximately, give or take. Uh, and we were talking at that time, uh, on that episode about how there were no mandate letters yet and no, uh, parliamentary secretary shuffle. And we sort of assumed that these things would be coming out relatively shortly. Uh, they have not yet, which is kind of surprising given that there's a cabinet retreat basically starting tomorrow. Um, and yet we have not seen these things i mean presumably the cabinet ministers have an inkling of what their jobs are and who their parliamentary secretaries might be but uh the public does not as of yet so uh, yeah let's back up and explain why this matters for people who don't work in this field um with a brief history of mandate letters um so mandate letters are the letter from the prime minister often drafted by the prime minister's office in conjunction with pco that tell the minister basically what their mandate it's is. It's their job description. Their basically. job description, yeah. what they're expected to get accomplished. Um, and so mandate letters existed under previous governments. They were just not made public. Yeah. Um, they were essentially sort of in the conference of the Queen's Privy Council. Um, and they were held close. Internally, there was tracking of, you know, how far along you were in your mandate letter. Um, and there was often... Um, deadlines, yeah, um, yeah, which, they, which would, is something you do not see in yes. these mandate letters. I mean, they are very the current. You can actually read them. Uh, you can you can go read the mandate letters. They're on uh, PCO's website. 
Um, and they're, they're interesting reading because they're very public-oriented documents, Can I right? be very pedantic? Yes, go ahead. They're, they're on PC or PMOs? They're on PMOs. Website, okay, my PCA. mistake. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, I hate to, to purvey <laughs> fake news on this outlet. Um, but yes, yeah, so at, at any rate, they're they're quite public-facing in the sense that there's a lot of boilerplate about hope and hard work and all this stuff. Yes. And, um, but there is there, there are useful nuggets in there. Yeah, well, I mean, very useful. They're an enumeration of what the government's priorities are, yeah. which is one of the reasons why everyone is so eager to see these new ones. Especially because, Bill Blair's, I think. Because it'll essentially, one, it's it'll be used to shed light on what some ministers are doing and what some portfolio, what direction some of these mm-hmm. new portfolios take seniors, for instance, um, what they're going to be doing exactly. Um, also, Bl- Bill Blair, no one's really clear on sort of how he fits into the departmental well, structure. Yes, and this was especially weird given the valence of the immigration issue that they sort of like created this border ministry and then were super unclear about what it will actually, or border minister, and were very unclear about what that person's job will actually be. Yes. Yes, and continued to be even when questioned at committee. It was very strange. <laughs> um, so a lot of people, there's a lot of eyes. Sorry, the intern is just making faces over there. there. There's a lot of eyes waiting to see what exactly this looks like because it, you know, it materially impacts government policy and the ability to sort of get a sense of where government policy is going in, in really critical areas. Yeah. Um, so it's weird that this hasn't come out prior to um, the uh, cabinet retreat. It, I mean, it's very possible that these ministers have draft versions of it that yeah. they're sort of discussing um, at retreat prior to a public-facing document being issued. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not outside of the realm of possibilities at all. Um, but it's something that a lot of Ottawa has been waiting for. Yeah. Um, and we have yet to see. Yes. Um, so it's it, I mean, them some time. Fundamentally, cabinet or mandate letters are fairly inside baseball unless you're a stakeholder in one of the impacted industries or you work in government or government relations or opposition mm-hmm. um you're never going to read these damn things yeah um but if you do they are a document often referenced yes um to move from mandate letters very quickly to parliamentary secretaries um more or less the same thing um parliamentary secretaries support their ministers and their responsibilities um they're not entirely symbolic roles. They often have small policy roles. Yeah. Um, they're somewhat seen as like, you know, the the farm team to eventually become ministers. As has been the case quite frequently with this government. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of people are waiting to see who is elevated to these roles. Also, there's other dynamics at play. For instance, Wilkinson. Jonathan Wilkinson. Uh, Jonathan Wilkinson. For, uh, a Vancouver area writing who is now fisheries minister. Elevated to fisheries minister. And he was the first West Coast fisheries minister in like... A long time. Yeah. Several... One decade? Two decades? Something? It's been pretty established that there is either a Northern or East Coast fisheries minister for uh, for quite a while now. Yes. Yeah. And so his parliamentary secretary, I believe is Terry Beach, um, as it sits, is also West Coast. Which is kind of odd, frankly. So, like, there's an instance yes. of, you know, who is going to be made parliamentary secretary from the East Coast to sort of balance out concerns there. Yeah. So there's, you know, a lot of this is the inside baseball dynamics that, you know, the average citizen will never, never care about. But But you bet that, like, the, uh, like, Association of uh, Fish Workers in uh, Newfoundland is 
very waiting with bated breath to see who will become the uh... yeah so if, if you're a stakeholder in any of these files it yeah. does become significant to you because this is who you're going to talk to yeah. and this is who you know you want to meet with because and who you want to learn about and build rapport and relationship with because they will ultimately have influence over the issue impacting your livelihood yeah which does matter as it turns out which does matter and then if we were to go one level deeper into the uh the inside baseball of things ottawa is waiting for is a potential deputy minister shuffle might accompany yeah. this as well um, that is like i think that is perhaps even more in- that is very inside baseball i don't think opposition usually cares uh, because even though like maybe they should more frankly uh but people tend to stay in these roles for some time and like often pretty much the lifetime of a parliament so there's often not always he's making faces um so it's, it's hard to like make this a like thing that you get very invested in in terms of deputy ministers because a their role is not really public facing so just to clarify for anyone listening who might not know what a deputy minister is they're basically the senior civil servant in a department who is sort of second to the the political arm uh, in the minister. So I, I would actually somewhat disagree with you. I think um, the people who are most effective in Ottawa um, follow deputy ministers very closely. Well, I did say opposition doesn't. I didn't say <laughs> that that's a good thing. I just said they don't. Uh, no, opposition <laughs> doesn't, though, because the role of opposition is... Is to be critical of the political of the, arm. Yeah. Of the political, right? I mean, that said, like there is a lot of operational critique and that because essentially the idea as a minister is that you're responsible for what happens in your department. If your department's not functioning, it does reflect upon you. So it does matter, and it, it is something that like people do track, but it's just the... There's no insight because there's not this like stakeholder relationship that we don't go meet with the deputy minister. We don't go meet with other people in that sort of role. It's oppositional. So for us, it's a very invisible role. And like you don't really interact with it or see it except as a name. So it's just kind of a different relationship than you'd have if you're in industry and you're talking, taking meetings with these people, talking to them about specific little policy nuggets that you want. It's a totally different relationship, and I get that. That's what I was leading to was sort of the stakeholder approach to government and the stakeholder approach to deputy ministers specifically. And like sometimes when I read American media, particularly some of the, I'll use this word even though it pains me inside, the wonkish stuff. Um, they'll talk about, you know, the particular position of assistant secretaries and of, you know, this, uh, civil servant. We don't really, I mean, in the, in the United States, the equivalent role roughly, except ignore the fact that they're often political appointees. Well, that's that's our our positions like the head of the FBI. Yeah. Um, which would be the equivalent to, you know, the head of CSIS here. Yeah. Or, well, we'll leave yeah. that uh, argument aside. Um, but there are the conversations in the United States that talk about the deputy minister equivalent positions and what the person taking over the role and what mm-hmm. influence they have and what their personal dispositions are. And that just doesn't happen in Canada. No. You do not see reporting by a single outlet I can name. Um, maybe Hill Times, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Well, mentioned, but not to the same degree of detail. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's what I want is a yeah. detailed accounting of you know the role of deputy ministers and what baggage and yes. what um, personal positions that they so, bring to their yeah. files. So I mean, I think a big function there is once again the sort of 
invisibility in the sense that deputy ministers are usually, once again, not always, uh, people who have spent most, if not all, their careers in the public service and have you know risen through the ranks. And the fr- the the thing is that people don't see the inner workings of the public service, whereas people, as you say, because the sort of like top three layers of the U.S. civil service are political. These people are coming from outside and have more like outside resumes. They may have had other public facing roles in the past. They may have had you know, think tank roles, heritage foundation or uh, Federalist Society for legal oriented stuff like this kind of thing. Right. It's just like because they're political to, um, you know, not 100 percent, but they're more politicized than they are here in the sense that basically every time a government changes or an admi- presidential administration changes in the U.S., the top three ranks in the civil service in every department get purged and turned over except for a handful. Um, so I think that is a big factor there. The fact that they are both a political appointments and be like people who typically have outside resumes and have had interactions with the political and media system in the past makes a huge difference there. Cause like no one, like they're not household names, deputy ministers, right? Like it's, it's no, but that's no also, that's also why they're not household names though. Yeah. I, so your your focusing on the angle related to the, the structural reasons why not and my and, and I take all of your points and I, I think they're well considered um, but on that I would add that our current media environment consists of largely reporting um, develop political developments yeah. in the House of Commons yes. on the partisan political side and then policy announcements and often just the announcements. Yeah. Um, and the amount of journalism that does follow-ups uh, on... On rulemaking. Like on on rulemaking, on regulatory process, yeah. on um, internal structures of the department and internal players within the department. Yeah. It, departments, broadly. Um, as well as, you know, interdepartmental dynamics, things along those lines Mm -hmm. doesn't exist in Canada. Though I think once again, that is a factor of the U.S. regulatory, et cetera, process and the sort of like, you know, the under the hood stuff being seen as part and parcel of a political process. Where here we sort of have more of a separation of church and state so, in that regard. In the popular view, though, I, I like I think government is political <laughs> no matter what. But there the, you go. The one exception to that rule um, or to that argument, I think, in our Canadian system is, of course, the clerk of the Privy Council. Yeah. Um, who is generally seen as a fairly political appointment. They're often yeah. senior political servants. Um, but be- Or senior <laughs> civil servants. Yeah. Um, but because of how intimately involved with the government are, yeah, I mean, just are, like by your nature, they're yeah. often seen as you're kind of the interface between those two sort of, and much in the same way that PCO itself is kind of like the interface between the political and the the professional public service, and it's just like someone has to play that role. But my point here is generally that the clerk himself, uh, him or herself, does not receive even the level of coverage that lower level equivalent position in the United States would get. Sure. That's probably true. Um, in, in thinking of the clerk, um, I can think of one recent story where he was jousting with the uh, Auditor General. Yes. Um, yeah, that's true. Jousting with the Auditor General over the Phoenix. Over Phoenix yeah. But I, that's the only sort of story of that of the dynamic that I'm describing that I can think of. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's sort of a, a... But I think it's, like, I agree. Like, I think it would be interesting to know more about these things. On the other hand, 
like part of the reason I think in, besides all the structural reasons we've mentioned is because like our political culture says that the accountability is with the minister so like while it, in especially from a stakeholder perspective I get that it's good to know who you're talking to but from the opposition perspective and I think from like a citizen perspective you just want to know that the minister is running the department well and they're the people whose names are on the door and like that's what matters at the end of the day I think from from a political perspective so I think that is part of it as well I'm not coming at it from a political perspective. I know though. you're you're now in in the world of, of stakeholders, so it's uh, it's very different. Hopes and hopes and dreams. Um, all right, let's leave that one there. Sure. Um, you wanted to talk about a something that happened in the last federal election that you think did not get a fair shake that you've wanted to get off your chest for a long time. Well, that's okay. So that's. Not the way I would, <laughs> not the way I would frame this at all. Um, the way I would frame it, fake news media is. Um, so Doug Ford uh, today had an announcement about you know the sex ed curriculum um, and the consultations that they're going to run, and in that there was uh, oh, mentioned yes oh, interesting <laughs> the most ex- huge huge consultations mm-hmm. um and in that there was mention of the ability for parents to go online and report their concerns yes um if teachers were not using yes. the prescribed curriculum the barbaric educational practices <laughs> tip line yes and so that was the immediate um you know parallel that was drawn was of course with the infamous barbaric uh, cultural practices tip line mm-hmm. and this is, has of course become sort of the you know the most remembered aspect of the 2015 election well, okay. and, and used to epitomize yes. some of the conservative missteps and sort of the conservative positioning in yes. that election so astute listeners who noted my earlier discussion of, of sort of the conservative history on on immigration may have been screaming in rage as i did not mention both the old stock Canadians remark that he made in the Globe and Mail debate, uh, Stephen Harper did, as well as the barbaric cultural practices tip line. And in part, that's because of this, this conversation that I've, I've had with Etienne probably several times now. But I think I've come away with, if not a uh, exoneration, then at least an understanding of where the guy was coming from on this, uh, particularly on the tip line. I think uh, you've argued convincingly that the old stock thing was just like him grasping for a word and yeah. settling on one that was not great admittedly uh but there you go um so to take that this this argument isn't mine but uh i i will convey it because i, I don't think this point has been made um explicitly enough publicly um in in regards to a a defense <laughs> of the policy um underpinning the the tip line yes which should have been better named probably uh, <laughs> yes. so let's let's back up and sort of try and conceptualize how we got to the announcement with kelly leach and chris alexander right um and it starts with often often as uh you know platform pieces do um with someone coming to the party or to a policy advisor at that point in government with a legitimate concern, a legitimate issue. Um, And then policy being developed in response to that. So in this case, uh, sort of as it goes, there were stakeholders within the community of, uh, you know, 
ethnic groups impacted by the FGM issue um, who wanted to work to address FGM in their uh, communities. And their communities often, as they are, tightly knit. And the idea of picking up the phone and calling the cops when you were worried or concerned about this sort of thing is not very appealing. Um, you don't know... The, the police is the police, right? I, I think I'm preaching to the choir with you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> About perhaps understanding the reticence that some oh, people, yeah. especially in marginalized communities, would have in calling the police about uh, concerns that perhaps implicate family members or friends or members of their community. Sure. Um, and so the response to this, and I think it is actually a fairly appropriate response, is to provide essentially a social resource um, to reach out to where you can get advice, um, social services style advice as to what your options are. If you want to escalate, if you want, you know, access to more resources, things along those lines. And so how do you do that? Mm -hmm. You That takes the form of a hotline that you can call and say, listen, I think this might be happening. What, what are my options? Um, very similar things exist for elder abuse um, for the exact same reason. You know, yeah. if your aunt is mistreating your elderly mother, you don't necessarily want to go to the police. As, you don't want to pick up and call 911. Like, sure. you, you feel stupid doing that. Um, if well, if you're if you're uncomfortable with it, and well, that or you feel yeah. like it can be handled, like you know, at a level of escalation that is below like that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so this gets packaged up and made into a policy, and it's put on the policy shelf of you know ideas. Um, that day, who knows what happened? It was taken off of the policy shelf, and some policy advisor said, "Here is my idea." We've, you know, been in discussions with um, community stakeholders, and mm -hmm. this is what they came to us, and this is what they wanted. Yes. Um, and then from there it goes to, into sort of the communications blender, let's call it. Yes. Um, and the communications blender spits it out with, you know, the barbaric cultural practices branding, or yes. not practices, uh practices tip line branding as well as an event where you don't have members of the um, stakeholder community present mm -hmm. and supportive and offering um, you know their uh, seal of approval for the policy well, and being a smiling human backdrop in the announcement and like all this it's so like, yeah this is like classic election stuff any any of those things and instead it was handed to for whatever reason, perhaps it was because of regional considerations or whatnot, to uh, Chris Alexander and Kelly Leach because that's where they needed an announcement that day. More, yeah. more, uh, more likely than not. Um, and so the end result of this was, of course, I mean, I think we're all aware of what the end result of this was. <laughs> <laughs> nothing good for you was, guys. I mean, it was nothing short of a communications disaster. Um, because somewhere along the way, a policy that was well-intentioned um, got spun and branded incorrectly to yeah. completely alienate sort of the core audience. Sure. And it, to be fair, this is coming on the back of like the niqab ban stuff and like other stuff yes. that I think... 
would have cooled a lot of like the cooperation and sort of like good relationships that the conservative party had had with the muslim community to that point in many areas of the country so like fair enough i think people were like primed to receive that message very poorly and it was delivered very poorly so like it was i think you know a crisis of the conservative party's own making and like their fault uh but like i can see why this policy can be a good thing like i get it so yeah it's, it's it just... totally depends on you implement it obviously because you have ceases listening to the call every time it's like not <laughs> just... great but like uh yeah no so yeah it's just imagine an alternate world in which you know this announcement with a different name was done with local stakeholder groups you know we're providing yeah. more well, you can imagine an social government doing social this. services resources yeah. yeah and that's so this is one of the uh, sort of what, what gives me optimism in sheer in, well what gave me optimism in Shear's um, uh, pre-leadership interviews or when he was in leadership he, he talked about you know conservatism with a smile sure um, compassionate, if you will. <laughs> compassionate conservatism. Um, and so that's sort of where, you know, this should go. Is And he had, I can't remember if it was with Althea Raj on Huffington Post or somewhere else. Um, but he had an interview when he was t- where he was talking about framing of issues like welfare, right? Mm-hmm. And you can frame it as... Um, let's get those bums off of welfare or let's get people into the workforce and contributing and taking part in society and, you know, making a better life for themselves. And these two frames are vastly different, but they, they sure are, but they so often get sort of confused and jumbled, particularly on the right. I'll I'll concede that. Um, as Ralph Klein famously, uh, (laughs) Throwing uh, money at the homeless. Um, So, I mean, all of that is to say, like, this is my hopeful vision for the path forward. Um, (laughs) That the communications approach does become, with with a smile, more considered. Rather than a a grimace. More, sort of yeah. a pained scowl. Where, Where these good news stories are told as good news stories and are... You know, accepted as such, yes. rather than instead of like defend your family from the uh, the hordes, yes, which is kind of like I mean, I barbaric culture practices to me sounds like something you'd call if your yarl was going to blood eagle like some some prisoners or something. <laughs> to yeah. use some Norse, yeah. Examples. Of course, it came from the act, um, sure. Previously, so it was very much a case of pulling the branding, getting a little too clever for itself. Pulling branding off the shelf and yes. reapplying it to something new, where it perhaps did not fit. Right. Um, Who would have guessed that conservatives would be kind of insensitive to nuance of these things? <laughs> no, I was. I, th- I yeah, I think it's unfair to just say conservatives broadly, but obviously in that in that situation. Um, something fell through the cracks. Oh, indeed, it did. So that's my uh, that's my defense of the policy. Pro- well, not the policy process. The policy thought um, underlying the infamous tip line. So there you have it, folks. Uh, that will do it for us uh, this week. Uh, we will probably get one more in before I go on vacation, and uh, and then we'll be back sort of on regular programming in September. Sort of around middle of the month, uh, when the house comes back and everything. So that'll that'll be great. Uh, so yeah, you can follow us at Short Pants Pod. We actually didn't have a beer this time. I think it's like one of the very few episodes we recorded That's not having thing. a beer. Yeah, 
Uh, but yes, that will do it for us, and uh, have a great night. Bye-bye.